0: Power on. Hi, friends, and welcome to the Pop Culture Retrorama Podcast. I'm your host, Vic Sage, and I'm here to share memories, thoughts, and information on all manner of retro related properties. Movies. Are you telling me you built a time machine out of a DeLorean? Music. I want my MTV. All right. Comic books. These ain't your daddy's comic books, fanboy. And toys. It's Castle Bracegall. And it's mine. Broadcasting to you from the depths of the pop culture retrorama vault. So, come join us, won't you? Now, you're playing with power. There were two of them. In the living room, lying on a couch, was a woman about 30 years old, wearing a red house coat. Her chest rose and fell slowly as she lay there, eyes closed, her hands clasped over her stomach. Robert Neville's hands fumbled on the stake and mallet. It was always hard when they were alive, especially with women. He could feel that senseless demand returning again, tightening his muscles. He forced it down. It was insane. There was no rational argument for it. She made no sound except for a sudden hoarse intake of breath. As he walked into the bedroom, he could hear a sound like the sound of water running. Well, what else can I do? He asked himself, for he still had to convince himself he was doing the right thing. He stood in the bedroom doorway staring at the small bed by the window, his throat moving, breath shuddering in his chest. Then, driven on, he walked to the side of the bed and looked down at her. Why do they all look like Kathy to me, he thought, drawing out the second stake with shaking hands. Friends, that was an excerpt from Richard Matheson's 1954 masterpiece, I Am Legend. And thank you for joining us for a special pop culture retrorama podcast. Once again, I have the great pleasure of being involved with the Superblog Team-Up, a gathering of like-minded bloggers and podcasters who have a fondness for pop culture. Comic books, cartoons, and movies, you get the idea. There is always a central subject. A theme chosen for each of these Superblog Team-Ups, and the one chosen for this latest gathering happens to be Immortal. Thanks to a chat with Charlton Hero of the Superhero Satellite blog, as we were discussing what I might want to cover, it occurred to me that you cannot get too much more immortal than when talking about vampires, which immediately made me want to tackle 1954's I Am Legend as my entry for this Superblog team-up, because it is incredibly hard to top Richard Matheson's literary masterpiece. That not only has found itself being adapted into a handful of films, but also aided in spawning an entirely different monster film and television genre. I'm talking about the late and great George A. Romero being influenced by elements of I Am Legend when creating Night of the Living Dead. Plus, when you get down to it, Matheson also managed to present, in my personal opinion, the greatest post-apocalyptic novel of all time. Before we dive into I Am Legend itself, I feel I should take a moment and share a little information on its author, Richard Matheson. I'm going to say right now that I am absolutely an enormous fan of the late and great author's body of work, not just for his literary work, but also for his own teleplay and screenplays, as well as the many adaptations from his writings. The Incredible Shrinking Man, The Twilight Zone's Night Call, Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, Steel... Then you have Duel, The Legend of Hell House, The Night Stalker, Somewhere in Time, Jaws 3D. Hey, we all have that lonely hill we choose to stand and die upon. And Stir of Echoes to name just a very few. Richard Burton Matheson was born on February 20th in 1926 in Allendale, New Jersey. At the age of eight, his parents, Berthoff and Fanny Matheson, divorced and he lived with his mother growing up in Brooklyn, New York. He was influenced to begin writing thanks to the 1931 adaptation of Bram Stoker's Dracula, as well as the historical fiction of Kenneth Roberts. In fact, Matheson had his first short story published in the Brooklyn Eagle newspaper when he was just eight years old. So, I guess it's safe to say that, even at an early age, he was already showing a lot of promise as a writer. After graduating from Brooklyn Technical High School in 1943, he served during World War II, Upon returning to the States, he enrolled in the Missouri School of Journalism, where he graduated with his B.A. in 1949, which is when he pulled up stakes and moved to California. In California, Matheson would not only meet and marry his wife, Ruth Ann Woodson, but there he would also sell his first short story, entitled Born of Man and Woman, to the magazine of fantasy and science fiction in 1950, a periodical that would put him in the company of such writers as Ray Bradbury, Arthur C. Clarke, Fritz Leiber, Zena Charlson Henderson, Margaret St. Clair, and Daniel Keyes, to name just a few. Furthermore, Matheson would end up becoming part of a very special group of legendary writers who came together and jokingly branded themselves the Southern California Sorcerers. A writer's group made up of Charles Beaumont, Bradbury, William F. Nolan, George Clayton Johnson, and Jerry Saul, to name a few. I will cover all of this in more detail when I dedicate an entire episode just to Richard Matheson. But this amazing group were a brotherhood, helping each other to succeed, much like what I believe Mick Garris's Masters of Horror have done of late. The Southern California Sorcerers, though, did it much earlier. And thanks to a reprinting of Cemetery Dance's 1999 publication that I found on the Rod Serling Memorial Foundation site... I think Ray Bradbury put it all into perspective, saying, quote, "Richard Matheson would toss up there merest dust fleck of a notion, which would bounce off William F. Nolan, knock against George Clayton Johnson, glance off me, and land in Charles Beaumont's lap. Sometimes, we all loved an idea so much we had to assign it to the writer present who showed the widest grin, the brightest cheeks, the most fiery eyes. End quote. I will naturally be sure to include a link to that article on this post on the Pop Culture Retrorama site. It's truly an incredible read. I wanted to focus a bit on this group of writers, as it is how I was first, in a roundabout way, introduced to the works of Matheson. As many of those writers I mentioned were largely responsible, along with Rod Serling of course, for the success of The Twilight Zone. Matheson himself wrote 14 of the teleplays of that iconic TV series. I've shared before on the Saturday Frights podcast and in numerous articles on the Retroist of how, when I was growing up, my father, exhausted from his work at a local steel factory, didn't feel like reading me a bedtime story. So, he would just make up a story. Of course, years later, I would find out these stories were actually just the plots of Twilight Zone episodes. But, they were just as entertaining nonetheless. I didn't have the opportunity to actually read I Am Legend until I was already a young man. In fact, I had to order a copy at my local B. Dalton's, a hardcover edition that cost me nearly $80. It was worth every penny. The first time I was introduced to the basic story of I Am Legend was thanks to the 1971 film adaptation, The Omega Man, starring Charlton Heston. It was courtesy of this Sunday Afternoon movie on TBS. Personally, of all the movie versions, I enjoy 1964's The Last Man on Earth, starring Vincent Price. We switch you to the state capitol, where His Excellency, the governor, is speaking from the executive mansion. Further, I have, in conjunction with the federal government, declared this state to be a disaster area. And to keep you here until they come. <laughs> to kill me. Vampires, alive among the lifeless, that make the night hideous with their inhuman cravings. If they are not destroyed in the flaming pits of hellfire stick to the ground in the light of the sun will the unbelievable become real a world of inanimate zombies by day irresistible horrifying attackers by night can a zombie woman's hunger for love repopulate the earth Having said that, though, if I'm to be totally honest, I've quite liked nearly all of the big screen adaptations in one way or another. Interestingly enough, Richard Matheson wasn't down with Price as the lead in the 1964 film. Matheson had written a screenplay for a film beginning in 1958 because it appeared as if Hammer Films was going to produce the movie with Metropolis's Fritz Lang rumored to be directing. That sadly fell through, and when his script went through a rewrite for The Last Man on Earth, he asked that his name be removed, and he be credited by his pen name, Logan Swanson. Charlton Heston supposedly said that he viewed The Last Man on Earth before beginning work on The Omega Man, saying it was, quote, "...incredibly botched, totally unfrightening, ill-acted, sloppily written, and photographed." End quote. Ouch. That is incredibly harsh, to say the very least. Although Price apparently looked favorably on the film version he starred in, Matheson, in an interview in a 2004 issue of Cemetery Dance, entitled Reflections of a Storyteller, A Conversation with Richard Matheson, the author said of the 1964 picture, quote, I was disappointed in the film, even though they more or less followed my story. I think that Vincent Price, whom I love in every one of his pictures that I wrote, was miscast. I also felt the direction was kind of poor, I just didn't care for it, End quote. Which I naturally think is a little kinder than what Heston felt about the previous attempt to adapt I Am Legend. Of course, in 2007, there was the incredibly big budget version starring Will Smith, and directed by Francis Lawrence, which I felt was actually quite entertaining. Although, I would have Desperately preferred, they kept the original ending to the film, instead of leaning towards the Omega-Man-like finale. The truth of the matter is that none of the three big-screen adaptations have truly captured the absolute terror and yet darkly thrilling story that Richard Matheson crafted back in 1954. The loneliness of its lead character and our protagonist— Robert Neville, a man living, if that is what it can be called, in a post-apocalyptic version of Los Angeles in 1976. At least, that's where the beginning of the story starts. And it appears it's been months since the collapse of the world as we know it due to, as strange as it may sound, vampires. We learn quickly that this bizarre blood-sucking and dead plague started a year earlier. Now, while I'm not going to jump into full spoilers for I Am Legend, there are going to be a few minor spoilers. So, if you've not had the pleasure of reading this masterpiece for yourself, you might want to pause the podcast. Go out and pick yourself up a copy of the book, or you might be able to find copies online. I'll still be here when you come back. Alright, let's get started. Robert, being immune to the plague, has managed to survive by transforming his home into a kind of bunker. The reason being is that when the sun sets, his home is assaulted by a mob of bloodsuckers, with his windows now having been boarded up, with planks of wood behind those for extra protection, along with strings of garlic and crosses placed upon the house and even mirrors. In this first chapter, Matheson expertly provides a mystery, not letting us know exactly that it's vampires that are the threat, giving us clues like Neville had burned down the houses around his own in the neighborhood to keep whatever the threat is from using the surrounding houses to jump to his own, describing how Robert spends the early mornings of a day checking the damage to his barricaded home-turned-fortress. Obviously, fans of the horror genre would have started to piece together what was going on when Robert spends time in what used to be his living room making wooden stakes. Lots of them. These are not the vampires of Bram Stoker, by the way, or the more commonly known versions in pop culture today, but the result of a biological plague. Having said that, they do attack and drink blood, turning on their own kind in some cases. They are agile and in some ways crafty, and for Neville, the worst of them is Ben Cortman. In life, he was not only Robert and his family's neighbor, but his best friend. Now, as the sky darkens, kept away by the garlic and crucifixes and mirrors, they do have a reflection, by the way, in the Matheson story. Cortman calls out every single night for Robert to come out of his man-made fortress. Along with other vampires, they hurl rocks at the home, as the garlic and other defenses keep them at bay, at least a little. Neville has a hothouse attached to his home. In another example of Matheson's skilled writing, he points out that besides Robert having to check and repair the damage done after every night of attacks on his home, he has managed to cover the hothouse with netting to prevent the damage from the stones being thrown by his undead assailants. Neville has to check the garlic strings protecting his home, replacing them from those he's growing himself in said hothouse. At least in the beginning of the story, Robert doesn't understand why the vampires are repelled by the garlic, but he has a theory that it's due to the powerful smell. In addition, playing on his crushing loneliness, the female living dead even manage to try their best to, well, I guess the only way to describe it is to seduce him into coming out of his home. Neville can keep an eye on them from the peephole in his front door. And while Robert might be able to do his best to drown out the calls with turning up the volume on his record player or even using earplugs, this existence is quite obviously grinding him down, resulting in what is most assuredly alcoholism. Although, not sure you can blame him in this case, right? And while the evenings and nights belong to the vampires, Robert is able to put those stakes to good use in the daytime. Now, Abraham Van Helsing he is not, and Matheson routinely proves that he is a man who's been pressed to the extreme. I'm not talking about just the quickness to try to find comfort in a bottle, but his situation results in destructive mood swings. Richard Matheson's writing in I Am Legend also does a great job of letting us know that even with some sense of satisfaction of putting the undead to rest, it haunts Neville. Granted, that isn't exactly true for Ben Cortman. For Robert, he's kind of become the white whale to his Captain Ahab. But for some of the others... Like when, after an afternoon away from home, after using 47 of the stakes in a single day, pounding them into the chests and through the hearts of the sleeping undead, he shudders as he realizes he had to dispatch 12 children. That's some pretty haunting stuff, to say the least. As the story progresses and months begin to pass for Robert, Matheson doles out more information. Early on, the character mentions a Virginia and Kathy... We learn that these were his wife and daughter, obviously both taken from him by the vampire plague. We also know that while he is able to place his wife in a family crypt at the local cemetery, his daughter was taken to the pit on the orders of the then still functioning government basically, a dumping ground for the victims of the plague that is revealed has constantly been burning since 1975. In an earlier chapter of I Am Legend, wearing a gas mask and taking out his vehicle during the day, we learn a bit more about that pit. And Matheson, once again, paints a pretty grim picture of Robert Neville's mental well-being, how close he is to just losing it on a daily basis. Quote, Now he continued up Compton Boulevard, past the tall oil derricks, through Compton, through all the silent streets. There was no one to be seen anywhere, but Robert Neville knew where they were. The fire was always burning. As the car drew closer, he pulled on his gloves and gas mask and watched through the eyepieces the sooty pall of smoke hovering above the earth. The entire field had been excavated into one gigantic pit. That was in June 1975. Neville parked the car and jumped out, anxious to get the job over with quickly. Throwing the catch and jerking down the rear gate, he pulled out one of the bodies and dragged it to the edge of the pit. There he stood it on its feet and shoved. The body bumped and rolled down the steep incline until it settled on the great pile of smoldering ashes at the bottom. Robert Neville drew in harsh breaths as he hurried back to the station wagon. He always felt as though he were strangling when he was here, even though he had the gas mask on. Now he dragged the second body to the brink of the pit and pushed it over. Then, after tossing the sack of rocks down, he hurried back to the car and sped away. After he'd driven a half-mile, he skinned off the mask and gloves and tossed them into the back. His mouth opened and he drew in deep lungfuls of fresh air. He took the flask from the glove compartment and took a long drink of burning whiskey. Then he lit a cigarette and inhaled deeply. Sometimes, he had to go to the burning pit every day, for weeks at a time, and it always made him sick. Somewhere down there was Kathy." While visiting Virginia's final resting place, Robert finds a vampire, a man within, asleep and seeking shelter from the sun. After pulling it out into the light, it dies. Truly dies as Matheson describes it. Quote, The man was dead, really dead, but how could that be? The change had occurred so quickly, yet already the man looked and smelled as though he'd been dead for days. Even with all the various defenses against the vampires that Robert was made aware of, we realize he never actually thought that sunlight would kill them. It will immediately destroy some of them because there starts to become a distinction between what Matheson describes as living vampires and dead vampires. The plague was able to resurrect those corpses that were already deceased raising them as what I take to be lesser vampires, like Ben Cortman. Neville attempts this same thing on a sleeping vampire, one of the living ones. I assume the living ones are recognizable by the fact they are breathing while sleeping. Robert exposes this particularly sleeping woman to the sun in a rather brutal fashion. And I say sleeping, but these living vampires are apparently quite aware when they are being attacked. As Matheson writes, and I promise this will be the last excerpt I read from I Am Legend. Quote, As he pulled her across the living room, she started to move. Her hands closed over his wrists, and her body began to twist and flop on the rug. Her eyes were still closed, but she gasped and muttered, and her body kept trying to writhe out of his grip. Her dark nails dug into his flesh. He tore out of her grasp with a snarl and dragged her the rest of the way by her hair. Usually, he felt a twinge when he realized that, but for some affliction he didn't understand, these people were the same as he. But now, an experimental fervor had seized him, and he could think of nothing else. Even so, he shuddered at the strangled sound of horror she made when he threw her on the sidewalk outside. She lay twisting helplessly on the sidewalk, hands opening and closing, lips drawn back from red-spotted lips. Robert Neville watched her tensely. His throat moved. It wouldn't last, "'the feeling of callous brutality. "'He bit his lip as he watched her. "'All right, she's suffering,' he argued with himself, "'but she's one of them, "'and she'd kill me gladly if she got the chance. "'You've got to look at it that way. "'It's the only way.' "'Teeth clenched, he stood there and watched her die. "'In a few minutes, she stopped moving, "'stopped muttering, "'and her hands uncurled slowly "'like white blossoms on the cement. "'Robert Neville crouched down and felt for her heartbeat. "'There was none. "'Already, her flesh was growing cold.' He straightened up with a thin smile. It was true then. He didn't need the stakes. After all this time, he finally found a better method. End quote. These distinction between the two types of vampires is extremely important, although Robert and we the readers don't realize it yet. Neville sort of changes after this. He begins to find an actual purpose in this post-apocalyptic world. He is driven to find out what has caused the plague now. Why are they repulsed by garlic and crosses, etc.? Unlike the films where Robert is a scientist, Matheson's character is a plant worker, but with nothing but time on his hands, he gets down to educating himself, thanks to the now unused city library. Robert actually begins to experiment on the vampires he finds hiding during the daytime, realizing that at the heart of the plague, the culprit is bacteria that the vampires spread by biting their victims. At least, some of the plague was due to that. The bacterial infection causes its host to go into a coma during the day, forcing the infected to avoid the light to save itself. This research does more than clue us readers into what actually caused the vampire plague and why Neville is immune to it. But it also makes Robert a far more deadly vampire hunter in the long run. As the story jumps forward to 1978, he is starting to do some damage to the vampire population. Even if he isn't dispatching them with hatred in his heart anymore, but feeling sorry for them as he sees them as infected people instead of monsters. Well, yet again... That doesn't appear exactly to apply to Cortman, of course. In fact, Robert is pretty sure that not only does his former neighbor and best friend know he's being hunted down, but somehow the vampire is enjoying it. Everything is turned upside down, though, when Neville, the last man on Earth, comes across a woman, red-haired and tanned. This stranger is spooked and takes flight when Neville calls to her. And I'm going to stop with the synopsis there. Like I said... I'm not going full spoilers with I Am Legend, but I'll say this. The title is apt and applies to Robert, although not in the way you might think. That title also applies to the book's author. Richard Matheson was and still remains a legend. Back in 2012, I Am Legend and Richard Matheson were bestowed a special one-time-only Vampire Novel of the Century Award by the Horror Writers Association. And that is just one of the reasons that both author and his vast collection of work are immortal in my eyes. Future generations from now will still be enjoying his work, whether through books or whatever film and TV adaptations may come. That is why I've chosen I Am Legend Friends as my entry for Immortal in this super blog team-up. I think that about brings us to the end of this episode of the Pop Culture Retrorama podcast. Make sure you hop over to the Pop Culture blog and check out the links to the other participants of the Super Blog team up. For what it's worth, you can generally find me writing a couple times a week, hopefully every day in the near future, on the Pop Culture Retrorama blog. If you want to check it out, you can go to www.popcultureretrorama.com. In addition to that site, I am also writing daily on the Diary of an Arcade Employee and Saturday Frights Facebook page. If you have any comments on the podcast or maybe suggestions for a future episode, you can contact me at VicSagePopCulture at gmail.com. The Pop Culture Retrorama podcast is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. If you like the show, why not help us attract new listeners by leaving us a review, a rating, and subscribing? The music you heard at the beginning and ending of our show is courtesy of Earl Green's TheLogbook.com, kindly used with his permission. Now then, I want to personally thank The Retroist, who, for nearly 10 years, allowed me to share my love of all things retro, including creating podcasts like this one and more. On the next show, as teased at the end of the last episode, I will be discussing the cult comedy film The Blues Brothers. Thanks again for taking the time out of your busy schedule to listen to the show, friends. It is much appreciated. One creature. Caught. Caught in a place he cannot stir from in the dark. Alone. Outnumbered, hundreds to one. Nothing to live for but his memories. Nothing to live with but his gadgets, his cars, his guns, gimmicks. And yet the whole family can't bring him down out of that hunky paradise brother forget the old ways brother all the old hatreds all the old pains forget and remember the family is one this has been a pop culture retrorama podcast thanks for listening have a better one goodbye